It's playoff time in the NFL. Oftentimes when you're having conversations with other people, both male and female, you say, if you are into sports, you say, who do you follow? And they might say, I follow the Packers. I'm so sorry. Uh, or people follow the stock market or they follow trends or you know, people are sometimes car connoisseurs and they follow this or that. And there's, there's a ton of things in life that you can follow. You know, you can keep your eye on something and it can really consume you. But when Jesus opened his public ministry, he gave two words that have really defined what it means to be a believer. Two small words, very powerful. In fact, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three show that this was his opening preaching. This is what he said. He said, follow me. Now he ran into people along his journey in his three, three and a half year ministry where uh, there was an exchange. Some people came up to him and said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus responded, you know, uh, birds have nests and there's holes for foxes, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And he would often challenge people to count the cost. If you really want to follow me, this is what it's going to take. Rich young ruler ran up to him in Luke chapter 18 and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. He was not denying his goodness. He was saying, if you call me good, you're calling me God. And Jesus basically said, you know the commandments, keep them. And there was an exchange In that, and Jesus got to the root of the rich young ruler's problem. His God, what he was truly following was money. Money had taken an elevated spot in his life. And Jesus said, go and sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and follow me. And the rich young ruler, because he had many possessions, his face fell, and he walked away sorrowfully and In a poignant moment in Scripture, as much as we could talk about what might have happened afterwards, Jesus let him go. He let him go. We don't know what happened after that. We don't know if the rich young ruler came to his senses later. We could conjecture about what might have happened, but he let him go. And Jesus said how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Riches are not necessarily the problem, but it's the love of money, not money, but the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. And the worst evil of all is that you have something that captures your attention so deeply that it keeps you from following your creator and letting him use you for what he has in your life. Let's pray. Father, as we talk about a message called follow me, we want to be people who follow you faithfully. We want to hear the voice of our shepherd and follow. We want to see what that means for our lives today in this contemporary culture, in this year, a new year ahead of us. What does it mean for us to follow? Is it the same call today as it was almost 2,000 years ago? Father, help us, Lord, as we get into your word. You're the author of scripture. You're the author of the call So many of us can resonate with these two little words that mean so much because it was a life-changing moment for us when we heard your voice and followed. And so, Father, I pray that you'll speak to us now, add and take away from what I've put on paper uh, so that your voice may be heard and so that we might respond in a way that would bring you glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I heard about an accident that happened in a kind of a nowhere place in a town and A man lost control of his car and he got into a pretty violent collision. And uh, there was a a good Samaritan and he saw the accident and he pulled the guy out of the car and it was tough to get an ambulance in this part of where they were. And so he put the man in the back seat of his car and he rushed off to a gas station to try to call for help and see what he could find. Well, the man had been unconscious in the accident, so he started to come to in the back seat of this man's car. And he really didn't know. The last thing he remembered was the, the crashing of glass and everything. But
But he was startled and staggered and began to shake violently. Where the man had taken him was to a Shell gas station that was open 24 hours a day. There was only one problem. The Shell gas station had a lit up light and the S had gone out. And so when the man looked at the sign, he saw hell open 24 hours a day. So that would be pretty scary. <laughs> I'm told that there's a, at an Indiana cemetery, there's a tombstone. It's more than 100 years old. It bears the following epitaph. Pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. An unknown passerby read those words and underneath scratched this reply. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) You know, of all that we could talk about in the world of philosophy and religion is the question is, where is your worldview going to uh, cause you to end up? You know, Chuck Swindoll famously said, it's not so much if you can live with your worldview, it's if you can die with it. And we all know that this life is temporary. I think, you know, we've all experienced the temporal nature of life when we hear news that shocks us and surprises us. And people go into eternity at alarming rates, rates that we don't really want to think about. And the question that really emerges is there, is there something to hold on to? Is there something that is truly eternal? Is there something that uh, I can say is going to bring me safely home into that heavenly kingdom? Well, the Bible says in Mark 1.14 that after John, that's John the Baptist, if you follow along with me, Mark 1.14, had been taken into custody. So John, the, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord now, is falling into the backdrop. His story is told in further detail in Mark 6, which we'll look at. And we, I think most of us know what happened to John. He was taken into custody. He was calling out the king for immorality. John was a voice who was not afraid even to call out political leaders for their immorality. And John was imprisoned. And Herod liked to talk to him, but there was a dinner party and because of a foolish thing that Herod did, because of his wife, who was upset with John, John lost his life. Well, the Bible picks up the story here in the fast-moving Gospel of Mark by telling us that John had been taken into custody and Jesus came into Galilee, that northern region in the uh, upper part of the, the nation of Israel, and he was preaching the Gospel of God. So, the forerunner falls off the stage, if you will, or at least you know he's in the backdrop now, and Jesus emerges, and this is really what John's ministry was all about. In fact, the Gospel of John kind of gives us a little bit more insight into the early days at the Jordan River, and the, the apostles, or not the apostles, but the disciples, because even John had disciples, um, of John the Baptist came to him, and they, he, they said, look, uh, They said, uh, John, um, there's more and more people coming to him and fewer coming to us. And John said, don't worry about that. This is what needed to happen. And in the famous words in John 3.30, he said, he must increase. Remember? I must decrease. Now, even in this early call from John's gospel, and you can write this down in your notes, it's chapter 1, verses 35 through 51 in John 1, We get a little bit more, and we see that Peter and Andrew and James and John were already kind of tuned in spiritually. They were, they probably had been baptized in John's baptism. And it was Andrew, Peter's brother, who introduced him first to the Messiah. So before this formal call comes, these fishermen have already been exposed to John the Baptist testifying to Jesus that he's the Lamb of God who takes away, you remember, the sin of the world. There's already been some stirring in these guys' lives, but they were fishermen, and they went back fishing, and Jesus emerges on the scene now, now in the Galilee region, and he begins preaching the gospel of God. The gospel is God's gospel. 
Gospel euangelion in Greek means good news. The gospel is the good news of God. It is God's good news. It's not man's. It's God's. You need to see that. It's the gospel of God. That's what Jesus came preaching. That's what Paul preached. The gospel of God. This is God's message to man. It's not made up by man. It's God's message. It's rooted in the Old Testament. It's rooted in prophecy. It's rooted in the book of Isaiah. If you go back there for a second, I want to remind you of what this looks like as we look at a few of the prophecies, Isaiah chapter 40. And here's what's going on. In Isaiah chapter 40, there's a transition in the book of Isaiah. And the, the people of Israel are wondering if God has forsaken them. In fact, they, Jacob is saying, uh, my way is hidden from the Lord. Pick it up at Isaiah 40 verse 1. And God speaks through Isaiah and he says, comfort, Isaiah 41 verse 1. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This ties to the Babylonian captivity as well. Here's the prophecy of John the Baptist. A voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. By the way, this is written 700 years before John and Jesus were born. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord, the one who is coming, the one who John prepared the way for, the one, this is like they, they would prepare the road for a king. They would smooth out rough places, make sure he could travel smoothly. The one that he was preparing the way for was the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands for how long? Forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. There's your gospel. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Now this is the prophecy of Jesus coming on the horizon. This is the prophecy of John the Baptist preparing the way. This is the prophecy that was quoted in the Gospels. Here's the one that is coming. He is God. We beheld his glory, says John in John 1.14. And it says, behold, the Lord God will come with might, verse 10, with his arm ruling for him, behold, his reward is with him. His recompense is before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. His arm will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead the nursing ewes. Now, go back to Mark. All of you know, I think, who have studied, studied the Bible just for a little while, that one of the great images of Jesus Christ is shepherd imagery. That's what Isaiah 40 just told us. He's the shepherd who will bring his lambs to himself. And he says, my sheep know my voice and they what? They follow me and I give them eternal life. This is what is at stake. Following Jesus is not just simply a pra pragmatic life choice. Following Jesus is eternally deciding where you're going to head. People don't like that. Modern audiences who listen to gospel preaching don't necessarily like the fact that we're talking about eternal consequences here. But that's precisely what Jesus said. And he said, if you follow me, nobody will snatch them out of my Father's hand. You will be kept because I and my Father are one. Jesus' mission was to be that good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. And he came and Jesus came preaching. Jesus was a preacher. Praise God. Does a preacher's heart good. Jesus was a preacher. Mark 1.14 uses the word caruso for preaching. And the word has the idea of a herald or one who cries out. Jesus wasn't just softly saying, well, what do you think? He was saying, follow me. Follow me. Right out of the gate, 
This is his opening line. He tells people, follow me. This is what it's all about. He was preaching the good news of God. Now this came right on the heels of his temptation. Luke 4, if you want to just write it down, verses 13 through 15 says, when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Jesus came out of the wilderness of testing into the sea of ministry. I just want to show you, Jim, if you got them ready. Um, this is the difference between the places that he was. He was tempted in, tested in the wilderness. And remember I told you that in the wilderness tradition, he was retracing the fallen footsteps of Israel. He was, he was conquering where they failed. And so he, he gets baptized in the Jordan. He, uh, he uh, faces the enemy and overcomes him with the word of God. And now he leaves this place, and he had been there for 40 days and, uh, dealing with the devil. Go ahead, Jim, if you go to the next one. And here is where he heads. This is the northern part of Israel. The difference between the Judean wilderness towards Jerusalem in the south and the northern part of Israel is, is kind of shocking when you first see it, especially firsthand, because the difference is you're in total desert, and then you go to the northern part of Israel, and this is the famous sheet of water called the Sea of Galilee. Some writers have called this the holiest sheet of water that is on the planet. This is the, this is the place where much of Jesus' ministry took place, and the difference is stark, isn't it, from temptation and testing, and he, and he overcomes it into ministry. And I just want to make an application right here. Sometimes you go through a season of testing, and it seems like even longer than 40 days, but often that testing is preparing you for ministry. So you can experience being someone who's involved in the ministry. Uh, Jim, keep going if you would. So here's another view of this great sea, and it's about, it's also called a lake, but it's actually 12 miles long, and at its widest point, it's about seven miles wide. And this is, this is the prominent place where Jesus was ministering, and this is where he called the early apostles. He called them from a life of fishing. Look at verse 15 in your Bible. He was saying, here's what Jesus' preaching was. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. See the word time in verse 15? That's the word kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S in Greek. The equivalent in Hebrew is moed. We have a Greek word called chronos, and that's where we get chronological time. Kairos is like a special moment of time. The Hebrew equivalent is moed, M-O-E-D, and it speaks of something that is like a divine appointment. It's like it was on God's calendar. When the fullness of time came, God brought forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The fullness of time had arrived. The Messiah was here. All the prophecy, all the discussion, John preaching you know, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people getting baptized in preparation to meet the Messiah. And now Jesus says, it is fulfilled. The time is here. The time is at hand. This is the prime time. This is the time when all that was written about Messiah is, notice, fulfilled. Jesus, out of his own lips, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand because the king has come and you really have a chance to live in one of two kingdoms. You can live in the kingdom of this world, or you can live in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is now. It is the rule of God over the people of God. This is an expression of the kingdom of God right here. And one day it will be fulfilled when he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And we will serve him. And we will experience the beauty of a new Jerusalem and all that that means. And Jesus came and he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And notice what he says next. He says, repent, verse 15, and believe in the gospel. Jesus was not only preaching the message, he was the message. He says, I'm here now. The king has arrived and Jesus preached repentance. Right out of the gate, 
The word repentance in Greek is metanoia. It means to change your mind and change your actions. In the Hebrew language, it's the word shuv, S-H-U-V in English, and it literally could be translated to burn the house. And here's the, the picture in the Hebrew language. When an ancient army would go into a city that they wanted to devastate, they would win a war, they would take a bunch of captives, and then they would go to like at the top of a hill and they would burn the village that they had just destroyed to make sure that those prisoners of war knew that their village was destroyed and they had nothing to go back to. In the Hebrew language, shuv, burning the house, means once you decide to follow the king and his kingdom, you burn all the things that were of your old life. You don't leave something to go back to. And that's our problem, isn't it? We are tempted to go back. Israel was tempted to go back to Egypt, even though they had terrible slavery there. They just remembered the good food and you know other things, and they had forgotten all that they had been uh, delivered from. And Jesus said, it's time to repent. And it's time to believe. Yes, Jesus preached repentance. Would you turn to Luke 17? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So just the next book to your right. Luke 17. Jesus is engaged in a conversation here about the kingdom. Luke 17, look at verse 20. Luke 17, 20. Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Luke 17, 20, Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here now. And I just say to you, there are people who miss primetime opportunities in their lives. Sometimes the biggest moments in our lives we don't recognize. I often watch people at crossroad moments in their lives, wrestle with God. I do memorial services and times when I'm preaching to people and I know someone's not saved and I know they have decided despite the weight of evidence but despite their own clock ticking on their mortality not to follow Jesus Christ. And I don't understand it. And I often see it happen in a person who says they believe. They're not some outspoken atheist. They say they believe but they let moments pass them by. If you believe that this gospel is true, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if you believe that eternity is at stake, what are you doing with that? I ask you, who are you truly following? Jesus' command, somebody compared uh, when Jesus is about to make this command as a military command. He's not just making a suggestion. He's saying this is life. This is the critical moment of time. You've got to decide. Now, many of us can look back to a moment of time when we decided, right? By God's grace, he called us and we said, Lord, here I am with all my baggage, all my problems. That's where it starts. You've got to decide if you want to follow him. And he will lead you to still waters and green pastures and he'll also lead you to difficult challenges at times because your life will be being lived for something that is substantive, something that will last. In fact, we can see that there's a war going on, war for souls and ideas. And, and so Jesus comes out and he says, look, this is it. The kingdom of God is in your midst. He said to the disciples, 22 Luke 17, the day shall come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away, do not run after them. For just as the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, at his first coming, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying and selling. They were planting and they were building. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom and it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day 
that the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, and then he talks about his first and second coming. He's talking about time here. God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. He's given evidence of this by raising Jesus Christ from the dead, and there's going to be a time when Jesus comes again, and the kingdom of God will be fulfilled. And we're You know, how long has it been now? It's been almost, what, 2,000 years. And there's another time coming, another Kairos time. That time has been fixed. It's on God's calendar. He knows the day that it is going to arrive. And Jesus says, when that day comes, there's going to be people who ignore it. They'll ignore the signs just like they did in the days of Noah and just like they did in the days of Lot. So Jesus says, it's time to repent. It's time to believe the gospel. Do you know that in Luke 15, just a few chapters back, go there if you would, Jesus tells the famous three parables, and uh, he's talking about God's heart for the lost. And he says two times in here that there's parties in heaven when one sinner repents. Look at Luke 15, 7. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then look at verse um, 10, Luke 15. In the same way, Jesus telling the story, I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Sometimes people say, well, isn't repentance a bit of a harsh message? No, Repentance is simply do a 180, change your course. You've been following something else, now Jesus says, follow me. Whose voice will you trust? Whose steps will you follow? That is the question. And Jesus is the answer. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, if you go there, Matthew chapter 4, we have another parallel account of Jesus coming out of the wilderness of temptation into the sea of ministry. And here, Matthew records in chapter 4, these words. Jesus said to him, to Satan, Matthew 4.10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Matthew 4.12. Now when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew 4, 14. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The essence of Jesus' call is to come out of darkness and into light. Two kingdoms. One kingdom is a kingdom of darkness. One is a kingdom of light. And Jesus comes on the scene and he is the light of the world. And he begins to preach to people and he's saying, repent because I want you to come into the light. I want to bring rescue. This land had been in darkness and oppression. And Jesus came as a light to the world. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me won't remain in darkness. He will have the light of life. Mark 1, if you go back there, verse 16. And as he was going along, so Jesus is the herald. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He's telling people to turn and follow him. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, Mark 1, 16, he saw... Simon, whom he would rename Peter, and Andrew, that was his brother, the brother of Simon, and they were casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. So Jesus is going along the Sea of Galilee. We've had the whole scene by the Jordan River. We know Peter and his brother Andrew have had exposure to the Messiah, and now they are fishing. And maybe as they were fishing, they were talking about Jesus. Maybe they were saying, what do you think? What level of commitment do you think we'd like to have with Jesus? Would it be cool to leave everything and follow him? I don't know, one of the brothers might say. 
It's pretty risky. We've got all our life and business here. And then can you imagine Jesus showing up when you're doing your work or you, whatever your task is, whatever you're interested in? Some of you are fishermen. If Jesus were to call me from fishing, I would have absolutely no problem personally because <laughs> I never catch anything. But that's another story. Here's these two men. We know their names. They're among the apostles. And Jesus said to them, Mark 1.17, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, I know you're in the fishing business, boys, and I know the Sea of Galilee is important to you, but if you follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to catch something much more important, something that will change people's lives. Ernst Lohmeyer calls this a sharp military command. And I asked the question, could there, be a, could there have been a measure of hesitancy? Could this be an early example of them going back fishing like Peter did at the end of his life? And now Jesus calls. There, this is not the first introduction. There's been some time to ponder. There's been some time to consider. And now Jesus calls them. He says, follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. Just a side note. I was reading in William Lane's commentary that the idea of uh, fishing and that uh, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men is actually not something that is necessarily new. In fact, it is rooted in the Old Testament. There are scriptures. Here's one, Ezekiel 20, uh, I think it's 28 and then 38.4 where it says, I will put a hook in their mouth. There's, there's Old Testament scriptures that use fishing imagery for the last day's judgment. And there are some scholars that believe that when Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, he's saying, he's tying it to the time fulfilled, to the kingdom of God and the moment of decision. It's a time of both judgment and grace. It's a time to decide where you're going to head and what you're going to do with this one who is called Jesus. This account is focused on Jesus, but it's also focused on people that he touched. He said, follow me, look at verse 17, and I will make you become fishers of men. When you get called by Jesus, he makes you become something. Sounds like a process, doesn't it? It is. Isn't that good news? It's a process. And we're going to see that in the life of these apostles, the call, the summons, it would, it would be one thing to immediately Leave your nets and follow. It's another thing to be consistent in that call. Verse 18 says, they immediately left their nets and followed him. If you want the scriptures about the Old Testament God as the fisher of men, Jeremiah 16, 16, Ezekiel 29, 4, and 38, 4, Amos 4, 2, and Habakkuk 1, 14 through 17. If you didn't catch that, go back and listen to it on the internet. Lane says the summons to be fishers of men is a call to the eschatological task of gathering men in view of the forthcoming judgment of God. It extends the demand for repentance in Jesus' preaching. Precisely because Jesus has come fishing, it becomes necessary. In other words, this is a poignant time. In fact, for Israel, in about 40 years from the time he calls these men, Israel will fall, Jerusalem in fact, will fall, what, to the ground. See, the clock was already ticking. Jesus knew what was going to happen. It was decision time. And you and I have to decide as well. Who are you going to follow? And where are they going to lead you? Well, it's impressive that they immediately left the nets and followed him. If you look over at Luke 5, we see a scene in the Gospel of Luke that is a poignant one. It's, it happens, uh, the focus is Peter Luke 5, verse 1. This is a great act of obedience, no hesitation. They follow. But let's look at what happens now. There's still some ministry around fishing in the lake. Now it came about, Luke 5, verse 1, that while the multitude were pressing around Jesus and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is another term for the Sea of Galilee. He saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. 
He got into one of the boats, Luke 5, 3, which was Simon's, that's Peter, and he asked him to put out a little way from the land, and he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. This is a makeshift pulpit, but it's pretty cool. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding, I will let down the nets. When he had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, and Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. It seems to me that there's a progressive, there's a process here. There's a recognition. Do you know how sometimes people excitedly, out of the gate, say, I will follow, okay, I'll do it. And they walk down the aisle or they walk forward at a crusade and then they realize, man, I've got a lot of baggage and a lot of things that the Lord has to clean up in my life. And the Lord does a miracle in your life. He does something that maybe shocks you in an area where you have some expertise and you just want to fall on your knees and say, Lord, are you sure that you've got the right guy? Lord, I'm a sinful man. I think we've all had those moments. I've had many moments in my life where God was giving me a place to speak and I looked at myself in light of who he is and in light of his power and his majesty and I said, Lord, are you sure you want to hang around me? I'm a sinful man. I try. I want to do my best. I try to rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit, but knowing who you are and who I am, how could you stick around with me? Jesus says, don't be afraid, Peter. I'm going to make you into something. You're going to become a fisher of men. When the book of Acts unfolds, you know who the main voice of the first 11 chapters of the book of Acts is? Peter. And he's preaching, and on the day of Pentecost, without a megaphone, he preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people trampled their way to Calvary. You want to talk about a big catch? There you go. Jesus is true to his word. He knew what he was getting with Peter and he knew what he was getting with you. Yeah, he knows everything. You don't have to fill him in on current events, on your shortcomings. He knows. Now he wants you to improve, no doubt. But it's still a process. And I believe you're going to become better at becoming a fisher of men as you follow him more closely. And so following Jesus was a process for the apostles and it will be for us as well. Back to Mark and we'll finish it up. Mark chapter 1. It wasn't over with this initial call that we see in the Gospels because going on a little further, Mark 1.19, Jesus saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Here's the famous sons of thunder, James and John who were also in the boat mending their nets. Now, Peter and Andrew were casting their nets. James and John were mending their nets, probably preparing for the next uh, day of fishing. And the word mending is an interesting word because it's where we get the word equip in Greek. It's a form of the word equip. It's ketartizo, I believe is the Greek word. And here's the interesting thing. Peter and Andrew are throwing the net out for a catch, James and John are mending the net, and this is what gospel ministry is about. We catch people in the net, and then they have to be what? Mended. That's gospel ministry. In fact, the word for equipping in Ephesians 4.12 says that's the job of pastors and teachers. They're to equip the saints for works of service, and then we're to try to help mend each other as we go along. And the word equip has the idea of setting a bone that was out of place and broken. Look, this is a hospital for sinners. We invite people to come in. We invite people to come just as they are. 
This is the most inclusive message that there is on the planet, I heard Pastor Brian say. It includes everybody. All you got to be is a sinner and you qualify. (laughs) All you got to be is broken, but it is the most exclusive message as well because Jesus is going to say, I'm the only way. He's going to throw out the net for everybody, but you've got to decide. So the message is inclusive, but it's very exclusive because Jesus claims to be the only way to God. And so here's James and John, and immediately when they heard the call, he called them, they left their father, Zebedee, he might have been a bit shocked, (laughs) in the boat, with hired servants, so there were others there, and went away to follow him. R. Kent Hughes comments, their following meant an immensely expanded life. The horizon of these fishermen's lives was bound by the margins of Galilee. Once in a while, they went down to Jerusalem for a festival, But by and large, they knew little more than the deck of their boat, the currents of the lake, and the handful of people they knew in the marketplace. Their conversation consisted probably of trade talk, local gossip, family affairs, Galilean politics. In a word, they were remarkably provincial, even to the extent of having their own telltale accent. Then Christ came and how their world changed. Their minds, once circumscribed and committed to the smallest interest, now overflowed with deep thoughts. They became theologians, thinkers, sociologists, psychologists, and strategists, all because of the gospel, all because of Jesus. How my life has expanded and deepened because of him. Had he never called me, I never would have done any of this stuff that I have done. I would have stayed in my world I would have stayed in my hobbies. I would have stayed pretty much probably self-focused. I would have cared little about some eternal kingdom that you can't see. And I would have lived for me and me alone. I would have never known the depth of this book, the beauty of knowing the God who made me. His call has changed everything in my life. Everything because of him. Amen? It's amazing. I look back on almost 30 years of knowing him and about 25 years of ministry, and I am blown away. And I often feel like falling to my knees like Peter and saying, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And he's been so gracious to me, so good. He's taken me to... Waters and depths I had, I would have never known. He's expanded my heart. It's amazing. I want to take you to John chapter 20 and we'll close. Now, with all that the apostles went through, we know that it, there was many wonderful times and many challenging times. We, we saw, you know, as we read the New Testament, we can see Peter... He had hoof and mouth disease. (laughs) He was quick to speak and he took radical, brave stands and then he would make blunders as well. And in John chapter 20, Jesus is risen from the dead and the, the gospel accounts take us to the resurrection. It tells us, John 20 verse 30, that there were many other signs, John 20, 30, that Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples which were not written in the book. But these have been written, says John, of his gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That again is the Sea of Galilee, another name for it, a Roman name. And he manifested himself in this way. They were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus. Now remember, we're post-resurrection now, so it's the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples. And Simon Peter said to them, what's your Bible say? I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Many years ago, a good friend of mine who went into mission work and became a pastor down in Temecula was preaching a message. 
There were people in that congregation that day whom I knew still needed to decide. And he was talking about Peter, my friend, and he said, you know, Peter, at a moment, we don't know everything that was going on in Peter's mind and all the details, but Peter decided to go back fishing. And he's about to be confronted with Jesus again. But he said, some of you who made a decision in your life to follow Jesus have gone back fishing. And then he paused and said, how is it? And to me, that was one of the more poignant moments in a sermon I I think I can ever remember. Because he confronted a lot of people who were listening that day, who had made that decision, and maybe they didn't even realize they had made it, but they weren't really following the Lord. And he asked, how is it? Well, for Peter and the guys, it wasn't good. They caught how much? (laughs) Nothing, verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus therefore said to them in a classic line, children, you do not have any fish, do you? (laughs) Don't you love when people phrase a question like that? They already know. It's not even really a question. It's more of a statement. And they answered him probably begrudgingly, No, (laughs) nothing. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. They cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. I think Peter's mind began to churn. That disciple, therefore, whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put out his outer garment on, for he was stripped down for work. And he threw himself into the sea. The Greek word for threw himself is cannonball, right here. (laughs) What, you guys don't believe that? There's a good reason. It's not what it means. But it does mean that he just kind of threw himself, like he didn't care. There was no regard And the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. This looks familiar. And so when they got uh, out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire. That's where, reminiscent of where Peter denied the Lord, already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Did they catch it? And Simon Peter went up, and drew the net to land. So there's Peter, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Um, I'll just tell you, there are some people that I've heard that study the Hebrew language and the number equivalents and say that the number 153, and I'll let you do some homework on this, when you take the Hebrew number equivalents to the alphabet or to the letter, means I am God. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Some believe that Jesus is saying more than you love fishing. Some believe He's confronting Peter because Peter said, though all will deny you, I won't, I'll die for you. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. You've been following me, now I'm going to call you to lead people. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Peter, you need to decide. Your life's not over because you denied me three times at that charcoal fire. I'm restoring you. But I'm restoring you to something important. You're going to shepherd my people. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, You will stretch out your hands. Here's a promise that Peter would grow old. And here's a promise of a crucifixion. And someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, would you notice in your Bible, what did Jesus say? Follow me. Isn't it interesting? It's like the opening 
call and the closing call are the same. And that's why it tells me as a believer in the modern contemporary age in which we live, I always have to go back and recommit to that call. In fact, I've got to do it every single day. I've got to wake up in the morning and say, who am I going to follow today? Am I going to follow the inclinations of Michael's heart? Am I going to follow the voices of others or am I going to follow him? He said, follow me. And Peter turned around and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, following them, the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who will betray you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, don't we do this? Lord, well, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Everybody mark this in your Bible. You follow me. Don't give me excuses, Peter. Don't, don't ask me what about him or what about her. You follow me. And I would just say this to you. This is for us. That's what Jesus would say to us. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the sanctity of life Sunday. You know, so many babies have died in this nation because we, many of us, followed the wrong voices. Thank you for forgiveness, Lord. Thank you for hope. Thank you that even in the light of our mistakes and shortcomings, there's healing. But Lord, you've said, follow me. You've told us to turn away from other things and turn to you. And it's not going to be the same for everybody what we need to turn from, but we know one thing. You've called us to turn to you. Help us, Lord. With your head and heart bowed, if you need to renew that commitment as a Christian, there's no better time than now. If you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, the time is now. You're here for a reason, and it's something like this. And I would encourage you to pray it out loud. Don't be ashamed of the one who died for you. Pray something like this, Jesus, save me. Thank you that you died on the cross for me. Thank you that you rose from the dead. I want to follow you all the days of my life. Give me your strength. Give me your power. Forgive me of my sin. I repent of it. And I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. Lord, for the work you're doing by your Holy Spirit in people's hearts and lives. For this wonderful congregation that I know deeply desires to follow you. For all of us, Lord, help us to be found faithful to the voice of our shepherd. Make us become something very special. Men and women who are fishers of men, bringing people into the kingdom because the time is at hand. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.